Thank you. Thank you, Pastor Sean. It's great to be here. It's great to be back. Um, I was, like he said, here about a year and a half ago, I think it was January 2020 that I came, uh, and I loved it, and you guys were great, and so I've been invited back. Sean said I could talk about whatever I wanted, and so, which is, you know, can be dangerous, but uh, he opened that up. But 4th of July, I think it just sort of lends itself to freedom, so that's what we're going to talk about. Um, my family can't be here today because we're having a party tonight at our house. We have a whole lot of people coming, and somebody needed to clean, and that wasn't going to be me because I was here. So they are home cleaning, uh, my husband and three kids, but they wish you their best as well, and they're sorry that they can't be here. Um, we're going to look at a few passages in Scripture specifically about freedom. We're going to be in Luke 4, and we're going to kind of compare and contrast what biblical freedom looks like versus kind of maybe our American ideal of freedom. But before we do that, the last time that I was here, uh, I kind of kicked, we had a whole lot going on. There were videos and stories, but we did trivia, and because I'm a trivia buff. And I just sort of feel like maybe now, I'm only, I know it's only the second time, but maybe that's our thing. Like maybe that's our bonding moment together that we do the trivia. I'm seeing a nod there. Okay, yes. So... Peter, if you could come forward, he's going to be kind of my Vanna White. I have a couple of trivia questions for you. I have some Starbucks gift cards. You need to raise your hand, and I will call on you, and we will see if you win the big prize. Everybody ready? Okay. Number one, these are not super hard. Number one, during what war did we declare independence? Right there. Revolutionary War. Peter, if you would. Boom. First winner. Yay. You got to take that to him. No, I'm like, I'm like wait. Uh, Peter, I know I called you last minute, but I was hoping we could work this out. Okay, uh, second one. We declared our independence from England, but who was the king of England at the time? Yes, right there. King George III. There we go. Excellent. Very good. Starbucks for you. Okay. Last one. What hit Broadway musical depicts these events? Oh, uh, right there in the back. Hamilton for the win. Woo! Thank you all for playing. I'm sorry I didn't bring Starbucks for everybody, but if I come back again, we'll do it again. You know, you have a chance. All right. So we've had our fun with trivia. Thank you guys uh, for humoring me. I do love that. Uh, I do want to start off with a little bit of a history lesson. We're going to kind of tackle the American version of things first, and then we're going to dive into scripture. So I'm going to give you a little background on the Revolutionary War. It started in April of 1775. Uh, it went through till what was considered kind of the defining battle was the Battle of Yorktown in 1781, which ended the war. But really, officially, it was over two years later in, when the Treaty of Paris was signed in 1783. So, 75 to 83, roughly, are the years of this war. But our Declaration of Independence, as you probably know, if you remember history from school, was signed in 1776. It was actually, revolution wasn't super popular, even in 75 when it first started. Most people wanted to stay with England and stay with King George. It was kind of a grassroots movement. Um, 
but then there were some, some documents that were written, Common Sense by Thomas Paine is one of them, just some pamphlets going out and kind of got people stirred up. And so in July 2nd of 1776, Congress declared their independence, and then two days, two days later it was ratified with our version of the Declaration of Independence, July 4th, 1776. Written by Thomas Jefferson, he wrote it in 17 days, it's kind of amazing. Um, and the Declaration of Independence has a few parts. It has the preamble that kicks it off, which is probably the most famous part that we all know. Then there's about 27 grievances against the king. And then at the end, we say, and therefore, we declare independence. And, and that's where we get what we get. Interestingly, we declared independence in 1776. We didn't actually achieve independence until 1783. But I would like to read an excerpt from the preamble, the part that we're probably the most familiar with for you, and I think it'll be on the screen behind me as well. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed, that whenever any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or to abolish it and to institute new government. Laying its foundation on such principles and organizing its powers in such form as to them shall seem most likely to affect their safety and happiness. So this can sometimes stir some great patriotic fervor, but I do want to point out that this is not scripture. It's a lovely document, not scripture. But if we're honest, sometimes we think of the idea of life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness, and it kind of holds that level of sway in our hearts and minds that Scripture does. It gets you kind of all worked up. And so that's sort of a picture, if you will, of, of this American idea of what freedom is. But in contrast, I want to now take a look at some Scripture. We're going to look at a biblical view, and we're going to turn to Luke 4, uh, chap verse Chapter 4, verse 16, and if you have your phone or your Bible or however you get there, I'll give you a minute to do that. Um, a little introduction moving up to this point. We're in Luke, as I said, the great Christmas story, baby Jesus. I do love Luke. Um, Jesus has been baptized. He's gone into the desert to face temptations. He then returns to Galilee and back to his hometown of Nazareth, and he goes to teach in the synagogue. And he stands up to read, which is the custom at the synagogue, and they hand him the scroll of Isaiah, which I don't know what that would look like, but I'm imagining it's a pretty big scroll. But he gets to kind of choose which part of Isaiah that he reads. And so this is the part that he reads from Isaiah. It's Isaiah 61. This is him reading in Luke 4, verse 16. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, he has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So after this, he rolls up the scroll and he tells them that the scripture has been fulfilled in their hearing of the reading. 
That's kind of a powerful statement. And so I want to look at this scripture in particular in some detail. And we're kind of going to cover a lot of background. I'm giving you a lot of information. But I want you to stay with me because I think it's important uh, to kind of paint the bigger picture of the full meaning that's behind this reading. Because there's the reading as he's reading it in the New Testament and kind of how we read it. But there's also this sort of double meaning because it's coming from Isaiah 61 of what it meant then and what it meant then, then, and what it means to us now, there's a lot of meaning in here. So we're going to try to unpack that, okay? All right. First line, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. So as we know, he was just baptized by the Holy Spirit in the, in the chapter just prior in Luke. The Spirit of the Lord came down on him like a dove. And so he's full of the Spirit in this moment. And he's teaching, as he's teaching and he's reading, he's essentially making this statement or confirming this statement that the Spirit is upon him and he's empowered by the Spirit to, to be delivering this teaching. It's not just of himself, but the Spirit is bringing that forward. And that actually takes us to the next line, because he has anointed me. So in Isaiah 61, the anointed one, the word anointed one, means Messiah or the one coming. And it was understood that the Messiah, when he came, he was going to be filled with the Spirit, and he was going to teach from a place of the Spirit. In the Greek, in the New Testament, it means Christ. Uh, but the Messiah had a very specific role to the Jewish people. He was going to come from the line of David, and he was going to be a conquering king, and he was going to restore uh, the land of Israel back to its people and destroy their enemies. That was kind of what the Messiah looked like. And so... He's, he's claiming this, as he's saying, because he has anointed me. To proclaim good news to the poor, um, the last time I was here, we talked about the Beatitudes, and that is literally Jesus' opening statement for his Sermon on the Mount, is blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So he's doing that now, but also then it was expected that the Messiah was going to come. He was going to represent the poor, the Don Trouted. He was going to bring justice to those who deserved it and needed it. Uh, he has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives. So liberty, or freedom, as we like to think of it today, in the Old Testament. Liberty is a release from slavery, or a release from captivity. In Isaiah, uh, it kind of meant that they were going to return from exile in Babylon. Um, but it also meant the day, or the forgiveness of sins. Um, and that takes us to a little side note about the Day of Atonement. So in the law, there were a number of holy days that were to be celebrated. This is talked about in Leviticus, and one of those in particular was the Day of Atonement. And the Day of Atonement was, let me go back up, before the Day of Atonement, people would come to the temple and they would have to offer sacrifices for their sins. So they'd have to bring a goat or a dove or a lamb or a bull, or depending on the sin and depending on what it was, this very sacrifice, and they'd have to slaughter them and splatter the blood everywhere. Aren't you glad we don't do that now? And, uh, <laughs> and so they'd have to do all this, and they, there'd be daily sacrifices and weekly sacrifices and monthly sacrifices. But in case you missed anything, because we all know there's a lot of sin going on, in case you missed anything, there was a big day once a year that was the Day of Atonement that was going to cover all the sins that you might have missed, or maybe you didn't have the right sacrifice or didn't go well. Big, big day, Day of Atonement. I'm generalizing this, but I'm kind of painting the picture. So on that day, the people would come, there'd be two goats, the high priest would sacrifice one goat, and the second goat would be sent out into the wilderness, he's called the scapegoat, and he goes out to carry the sins of all people away out into the world. 
So this is the Day of Atonement. It's a very important holiday, holy day for the Jewish people. Still important to this day. It's called Yom Kippur. still celebrated today. This is what this Day of Atonement means. And so really it's this idea of forgiveness of sins and this idea of liberty is tied to this Day of Atonement. Okay. Next line, recovering of the sight of the blind. That obviously meant physically healing people, but also opening our eyes to see what we couldn't see before. To set at liberty those who were oppressed. That includes healing, casting out of demons. Again, forgiveness of sin, release from exile, release from slavery. And to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That's the last line. This is in reference also to something in Leviticus called the year of Jubilee. So I'm going to just read this line. This is Leviticus 25.8. It'll be up there. You can turn to it if you want. I'm going to read it out loud. It says... You shall count seven weeks of years, seven times seven years, so that the time of the seven weeks of years shall give you 49 years. Then you shall sound the loud trumpet on the 10th day of the seventh month. On the day of atonement, you shall sound the trumpet throughout all your land, and you shall consecrate the 50th year and proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you when each of you shall return to his property and each of you shall return to his clan." That 50th year shall be a jubilee for you. In it you shall neither sow nor reap what grows of itself, nor gather the grapes from the undressed vines. For it is a jubilee, it shall be holy to you. So if we look at that, and the whole, all of what we just read, I'm going to read this one more time. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That's a really big picture of freedom. There's a lot in there, right? So basically, a spirit-empowered Messiah is going to come. He's going to bring good news to the poor. He's going to set us free from captivity. He's going to pay for all of our sins for all time. He's going to heal us. He's going to open our eyes so that we can see the true kingdom of God around us. He's going to cast out anything that oppresses us. He's going to pay all our debts and restore us to our rightful home with God. That's big. That's a big deal. So when we look at that, and we look at kind of our American version of freedom, there's a, there's a couple of things actually that they have in common. The first one, I would say, is that freedom is radical. Uh, the Revolutionary War was a really radical idea. As I said, it wasn't popular. There weren't a lot of people who were in support of it. Uh, the status quo was to stay with England and King George. It just was, there's a couple of ragtag guys, you know, promoting this wild idea. Hey, let's pull away from the, from the big machine. It's, a, it's radical. It's a radical idea. Similarly, Jesus was very radical. Uh, he constantly broke the status quo, hanging out with sinners, doing things that just did not seem like what he was supposed to do. Even this reading of the scripture in the synagogue and then claiming that he's fulfilling the prophecy is a radical, radical statement to make. So there's this radical nature of freedom. The second thing that is kind of the same is that freedom has a cost. Uh, we've, we've been in a lot of wars, starting with the Revolutionary War, where people lost their lives. World War I, World War II, a lot of people fought and died for this idea of freedom, and it cost us something, right? 
My husband spent 22 years in the Navy on U.S. submarines and missed a lot of Christmases and birthdays and Fourth of Julys uh, for the sake of def defending the country and for the sake of freedom. So there's a cost to that. And oftentimes when people go to war, the cost is death. But similarly, Jesus paid the ultimate cost for our freedom, right? He gave his life on the cross so that we could be free. He gave his life so that we would not be subject to the law anymore. He gave his life for all that we have, and he fulfilled the prophecy. But there are also some things about freedom that are different than kind of our American version. And Sean touched on one when he was doing communion, and one of those is sort of this idea of independence versus dependence. So independence, the United States of America, we are proud to be independent. We can do it ourselves. We're the underdog. We want to claim that for our own. We don't need any help. Thank you very much, Great Britain. We're good. That's this sort of underlying American ideal that's under us. But really, in the kingdom of God, we are completely and totally dependent on him. We, we can't do anything without him. Without him, we just, we don't got it. We don't got it. The other idea that's a lot, quite a bit different, I think, is this idea of rights versus responsibilities. Um, in the U.S., we're, we're big on our rights, right? But this idea of rights sometimes can mean, like, I get to. I get to say whatever I want, no matter what the cost is. I get to do whatever I want with my body. I get to have weapons and fight whoever I determine to be bad. I get to, I get to, I get to. This is what I earned. When really, there is no, we don't have any rights in Scripture. The whole idea of God-given rights is sort of a misnomer. We don't have God-given rights. We have American government-given rights. But our only God-given right, the only thing that we've earned under God is death because we sinned and we fall short. So we earned death. That's all, that's all we get there. But luckily, Jesus paid that price for us. Conversely, our Christian freedom says we enter into servanthood. Romans 6 and 7 says we're free from slaves of sin and we become slaves of righteousness. We're literally slaves to God. We're free from the law, and we are set free, but we're slaves to God. 1 Corinthians 6 says, you are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So this idea of rights versus responsibility, what does that look like? Um, you can see kind of the differences there. I want to give a personal example and a story, and I am going to be very honest with you. I wasn't going to share this story. I had a different story that I was going to share, and I was praying about this last night, and I felt like the Lord said, no, you need to share this particular story, which is a little bit sensitive, looking around the room here, um, but I'm hoping that somebody needs to hear it. So I love to put God in a box. Uh, I am definitely kind of a black and white person. Things are good or bad. Things are right or wrong. Uh, I want to be in control. I hate chaos. I like things orderly and tidy. And I do that with most of my life. I have little boxes that I put things in. And I am finding over the years that the Lord is very graciously and kindly breaking those boxes down for me. The last time I was here, I think I shared about my job, 
and money and kind of living in a box of what that was supposed to look like. And then the Lord just broke that down and said, yeah, no, we're not doing that. We're going to take you over here. And it's scary. It's scary when the Lord breaks down the boxes. Um, this year, it's been a different box for me that he's been breaking down. So in my younger years, and by younger I mean after high school into college, uh, I was very promiscuous. I thought that if I was knowledgeable in the bedroom, that men would love me or want me or desire me more. Uh, and so I was pursuing, in my mind, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. I wanted to be with somebody. I wanted to have fun. I thought it was a great thing, and I lived that kind of lifestyle for a while, and I caused a lot of damage, and I faced a lot of consequences, and ultimately, ultimately it brought me a lot of pain living that way. And so then, at 29, I found Christ. I had a very powerful Holy Spirit experience. It was amazing. And I kind of went from messy and wild and crazy over here to Puritan <laughs> and uh, decided, you know, sex is bad, abstinence good, and just kind of did this 180 turn, which when you're not married is true and a good thing. But then I got married. And so now I'm living in this married box with this sort of idea of, well, sex is bad, but it's not when you're married, but what does that really look like? And I, I, I don't know. And for years... I have struggled to enjoy marital relations with my husband because I, I have a box, bad, good. And I've just switched from the bad box to, or the good, yeah, the bad box to the good box, which in my mind meant that I was going to be safe and I was going to be holy and I was going to be completely devoid of passion. And this year, in January, the Lord spoke a word to me and has basically said, we're going to start to break down that box. Uh, and, and I have no idea how to do that. And Jesus says, I'm going to go with you in that, which honestly, if I'm honest, like it's a little, all right, Jesus, we're, we're going there together. You're going to come with me here together. Yes, he is. He's going to come with me into the bedroom with my husband and help me work out this box and break down these barriers. And it's, it's scary and it's weird. And I've had to be in a lot of conversations with my female pastors at work and talking through things. But he's opening up parts in my heart that are bringing out passion and love and joy and peace and contentment and stuff that I never knew was there because I lived in this prison of trying to keep myself safe and be in control and do it my way. And he's breaking that down. So instead of life and liberty and the pursuit of happiness and that old view of what that looks like, I'm now, now what I look for when I think I'm looking for freedom, I'm looking for love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. I'm looking for the fruits of the Spirit to align with me and say, yeah, this, this is what it looks like to live in freedom with the Lord. So I wonder what does freedom look like for you in your life? Are you in slavery to something? Maybe you are fighting addiction or you're fighting something that truly is got a hold on you or maybe you have created your own box as I did. And I'm going to be honest with you, that's one of many. I have food boxes. I have money boxes. I have mood boxes. I got a lot of boxes. We're <laughs> Praise the Lord that he's just doing them one at a time. Uh, but maybe reflect, you know, what's your box? What are you stuck in? What's the freedom that you're lacking that you're not finding? 
Um, some of us are waiting, you know, nationally for God to kind of bring the Messiah to America. And we sort of even might have a predetermined idea of what that is going to look like. It might mean if XYZ becomes president, then our country is going to finally be on track. And I want to say that this is the exact same mistake that the Israelites made when they were looking at the Messiah. They were thinking, man, when the Messiah comes, they're going to kick out Rome and we're going to get Jerusalem back, right? It's going to be great. Like, what a tiny little box to live in if that's the idea of freedom. Such a small box. Freedom is so much bigger than that. It's so much bigger than let's get this guy that we like or don't like out of office and change it. It's so much bigger. Freedom in Christ is available, first of all, to everybody. There's no one that doesn't qualify for it. There is no minority. There's no injustice. There's no power play. You don't have to be at the right place at the right time. He already paid the bill for us to have freedom. And there's no government on the earth that can take it away from you. It is yours. His freedom is so much bigger and better than any idea of freedom that we could possibly conceive. Um, Bob, you picked a great song to close with, and I'm going to just close with this same scripture, John 8, 36. If the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Amen? Amen. Okay, let's close in prayer. If you'd like more information regarding Hub City Church, find us at thehubcitychurch.com. Thanks for listening.